we are walking a line between structure and freedom and being free to not script ourselves too much, but having a guideline kind of a, you know, a few paths, a few points we want to start off with jumping off points, but trust that we're going to kind of weave our way around it. And I think that is reflective of now that as I'm listening to you on that, I'm thinking that is reflective of how we are doing this activity as well. And that question of freedom and where it comes from and how we, how we live it happily is like the guiding question we're going to be exploring forever. Buddhist monk and a former Catholic explore the power, pleasure, and mystery of spiritual practice outside of institutional religion. I'm Shane the Catskills, an artist living at the intersection of social justice and spirituality, who spent a decade living in a Zen Buddhist monastery before re-entering lay life in 2019. And I'm Peg Conway, a writer, energy healer, and motherless daughter. I anchored myself in the liturgical rhythms of the Catholic Church for my entire adult life until I just couldn't anymore. In our previous episode, we talked about how this conversation started and our liturgical origin stories. In today's episode, we'll explore how our journeys within our respective institutional religious traditions ended. Hey, Peg. Hey, Shay. How's it going? It's so good to be here with you again, as always. As always. So, um... Let's check in. How are you arriving today? I am arriving actually better now that we're here. I, it, I have been pretty gutted this week by the recent shootings in New York and Texas. And particularly when children are involved, I just, just my nature, I'm, I'm even more affected. And so I've just, and I've also like the recent, the revelations that have been coming about the behavior, the lack of action by law enforcement hits me really personally because of my past involvement. I was an elected official in the little village where we used to live. And I had, I was the chair of the police fire committee and I interacted a lot with law enforcement who were extremely devoted to their jobs. And it's just so upsetting. It's just so upsetting, but finding connection here is giving me a little relief, awakening, feeling the emotions is, it's been the theme of the week. That's just the place to begin feeling the emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like I'm in a similar place. I've been very unhelpfully glued to my timeline and my newsfeed. And, um, you know, there comes a point where I have to sort of remind myself, like, you know, I'm not actually any more informed for being glued to my little screen and that it actually, um, I really notice that it impacts my mental health, um, to kind of linger in that place, but it's just been so much, um, you know, reeling from the Buffalo shooting. And then a week later this, so, um, it's a lot. And, you know, the, as someone who feels very committed to prison industrial complex abolition, you know, I kind of feel like this whole Texas situation is sort of making a case for abolition in a way that, you know, um, few things can, um, but it feels really good to be connected here today and to sort of get off the news feed and really plug into the things that um, feel generative and remind me that the world is a very large and mysterious place. So um, I am really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. For me, I, I actually avoid my, I, I avoid the news to such an extent that that's not healthy for me either. I feel like it becomes mm. a frozen up kind of thing that I am only really re- recognizing fully. I think, I mean, I've obviously been this way for a long time, but it helps me to like, oh, I, I'm really not dealing with this. I'm really kind of numb. And to just, even saying that to myself makes me, okay, you're not, it's okay. You, you know, you'll give it a little time and kind of let it in a little bit. And then often some little trigger thing will reading something, some little detail will 
like break the floodgate. And then I cry and then I actually, okay, I'm feeling again. This is good. Take in some news. Yeah. Same, same, same. Yeah. Kind of toggling between numbness. I guess toggling suggests like two options. It's more like I rotate between numbness and rage and um, devastating grief. And I think that it's actually healthy to kind of move between those things because I think to be in any one of them for a prolonged time for me is um, actually not great. And sometimes collectively the rage is the grief, but it is like not all the way down to the grief yet. And it's the grief is really central. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I'll say about that. I mean, how many minutes are we into this episode? Yeah, that we could go to, on the whole time. It, and I don't know I mean, that, that it's time to mention the overculture is that, you know, the cold, our culture does not really support any kind of, you know, grief takes time and, you know, we live in such a back to normal, go, 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 you know, rush, rush, rush culture that it's really hard practically and logistically to stop and actually feel, um, and, and to be able to do that with other people. I think that that's something that I feel like I need and it feels hard to come by. And seems like here we are the ritualists (laughs) wanting that space. And this week, these past weeks have arguably really presented support for our fundamental belief that containers and rituals and connection outside of institutions is key. I love that way to bring it all together. That's, that's great. So we are going to be talking today about, we, you know, the last episode was kind of how it started. And this episode is kind of how it ended. And um, we exchanged some messages this week in preparing for the episode, just about our respective process of, about reflecting on, on that story. And, um, you know, I was sort of dreading is, is not the right word, but I was anxious perhaps about, about this episode, um, because it's been three years since I left the monastery and, um, you know, we were talking before we started recording about how, when you look back on an event, especially a precipitous event, there's a way that it kind of shape shifts and it looks different every time you look at it. And there are so many different ways to tell a story like that, that the, the telling of the story itself is a kind of ritual, um, choosing, you know, how I want to make meaning about something that happened, um, you know, is a creative process, you know, telling a story is, is a process of, um, choosing what, what to leave in, what to leave out, what to center, um, what to keep kind of on the margins and, um, that that can be, can be an empowering process, I think, if, if taken up consciously and intentionally. Um, so I don't actually have like a whole prepared spiel or narrative, um, because I think we like to, you, you often say like, we don't want to over-engineer it. And I think that's something that really makes our conversations really kind of fresh. Um, but I am a little anxious about like how I'm going to tell the story. And I'm curious about what your process has been like this week, sort of preparing to tell your story. Well, my ending occurred a number of, actually, it's hard to pinpoint when my ending occurred. And so I, this week as anticipating this conversation, I've been really curious. I totally resonate with what you said about how the story, telling the story is like putting a stake in the ground. And every time you tell it, it's a, in a different kind of thing. And my ending came about gradually. Uh, it's, and so this week I've been really curious thinking about, well, was it this or was it that? Where am I? Where do I come at this now? Where, how do I understand who I was at the time that I was exiting the church um, with who I am now, like from this place? And it's it's been very helpful, actually. I find it, um, I can finally get some perspective on it. I was so in it. And the end, the thing, a new idea, somewhat new idea that came to me is there was a lot of grief that I didn't exactly recognize directly as grief, like, or honor as directly as grief. There was a lot of 
thinking about events and forces beyond my control and sort of, and I think I was in a grief. And so I wasn't, I wasn't, I want to say I wasn't rational, but I wasn't totally tuned in. Can you, I mean, I don't know how you want to sort of like tell the story, but I'm curious if you can give an example of, of what you just said about like, not sort of recognizing that, you know, that it was as grief, you know, seeing it more as sort of, um, events that were happening. Well, we had been, uh, at this parish for like 20 plus years at the, this was like 20, 2011, I might've mentioned this in the previous episode in 2011, the bishops changed the liturgy. They changed the wording of the mass and in several key places that really just really rattled the whole thing really rattled me. I did. It felt like I perceived it as a power move. It really was not, um, it, it, it just created a lot of disruption for not a whole lot of, it really was, they weren't big changes of words, but they were meant to convey a different meaning. And at the, also in that time period, this is around 2011, there had been a big investigation of all the nuns in the United States that was clearly, again, a patriarchal power move that was very upsetting to me. So these are outside events that are happening. And then our pastor, our longtime pastor, uh, left after 20 years. And he had been at the parish for our children's whole growing up, almost our entire marriage, and was just really a big part. He, he talked about ritual and, and liturgy. I mean, he's really very gifted in those areas. And so our liturgies were centered, the symbols and um, created the community, a lot of participation. And his, his preaching is always very um, empowering. You know, you always left feeling like, okay, I'm ready to take on the world again for another week. And he was actually rather Zen. People who were Buddhist referred to him as being very Zen um, in being present with what is. And it just, it just was very nurturing. So he left and another pastor came and that led to some other little changes that I could, I didn't know how to tell the story because I didn't understand. It all felt external, like these things happened. And I didn't have, I didn't have the self-awareness or I didn't, it was too, I can't even, this is part I struggle for. I don't know how to explain. I just didn't fit in anymore. I didn't feel like I fit in this place that had been like my home, like Mm -hmm. my family, my, my network, my support, my, my spiritual life. Like it was a huge piece of my life. And suddenly I felt like I didn't belong anymore. I just couldn't fit. I felt prickly. I felt lonely or like, I just didn't want to, I just couldn't go or I could only go occasionally. And there was so much grief. And of course I still fell back on like Christian symbols of Exodus and, you know, like feeling, and I also felt like, why aren't more people upset? (laughs) Like that's, that's a part of feeling alone. Like why aren't more people upset about the things I'm upset about? And some people were, but it just didn't, touch them at their core, the way it did for me. And so I felt somewhat unsupported, but then when I stopped going, then I had people who missed me and my, some of our dear friends, like one person in particular, almost got teared up saying, we really miss you on Sunday. And, and I just couldn't, I'm like, I know I miss you too. And I, what I was, is I missed who I used to be. I missed Mm. that. I missed me too, but I wasn't her Mm. anymore. And I didn't know who I was not Peg Conway, member of Bellarmine Parish, active Roman Catholic, progressive, liberal person, liturgically minded and active in committees. And I I did not know who I was. And it was extremely jarring, but I couldn't make myself do something that felt inauthentic. And so it was this in-between place. It strikes me now from this perspective, almost 10 years later, it began 10 years ago. And I think I think I fully stopped going to church around the spring of 2016, 20, sometime in 2016. It was a gradual cessation. And looking back now, it strikes me that it began when our, around the time our children were leaving home, like it was a very transitional time and change in my life in general. And I had not really meshed those in my, but something to think about. It's interesting to hear you talk about um, that the, um, people missed you, but you missed you, you know, and then to talk about this transition with your children, it's almost like these major identity shifts going on in you precipitated, 
um, well, perhaps by this change in leadership at the church, and then this change in your role as being the mother of children who live at home, that, you know, these it's, and it's interesting to just see how like you were kind of becoming a different person and that there's grief associated with that, even if ultimately it's like, ends up being more feeling more right or correct or positive, that there's still a loss that's hard to articulate. In the bereavement literature, I think it might be referred to as an ambiguous loss. Mm. You know, it's like loss of community, loss of identity, but that's not like a marker in our culture of something to have a, that has some formal outlet for processing. I mean, you're kind of on your own for that. Which is, I didn't have any resources outside of my parish. Like I didn't have like I mean, I had, you know, I had friends and I stayed in touch with various, I still stay in touch with various friends, um, but it is not the same. It is not the same because we don't have the same shared experience. We have some shared history, but we don't have the same current experience. And I, I acknowledge that it was, is, remains a loss to me of some of those relationships. It's like an ambiguous loss. I mean, just that the the place or the the structures that you would turn to in the face of a, a loss are the very source of the pain and the loss. It's- and and the inability to explain it in any way that seemed rational. Like, why? Why? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I just can't. I just yeah. can't. Yeah. Um so much deeper than the years, rational. A few years later probably around 27, 2017, 2018. I can't remember. There was a group of people from the parish who were coming together because there was some issue around something with the liturgy music, or they, they were wanting to collectively present some input to the pastor and someone who didn't know I really wasn't going to church anymore invited me to the meeting. And I thought, Oh, should I go? Should I not go? And I, I was curious and I kind of wanted to just kind of touch back in, like dip my toe back in and see how does this feel? And when I was there, I realized, no, I really, I'm really not part of this anymore. And I felt more okay. Like it began, I think I saw myself as more, began to see myself as more grounded in myself and in the practices that I was engaging in. I still sort of follow at that time. I sort of followed the Christian calendar just on my own. And, and I remember writing a letter back, like a note back. I wasn't going to go to the subsequent meeting. And I wrote back and thanked the person for, thank you for including me. It was really very um, rewarding and enjoyable to be part of this conversation and to reflect on my own experiences. And I felt like, I, the image that came to me is I was no longer in the box. I had come out of the box, out of this box that I had been in and made. And I think there was a long time where I felt bad about myself that I had failed as a Catholic, or I had, you know, there's that, I am prone to a very reflexive inner critic and that, that, oh, you're, you're, you've goofed this up. Now you've messed up your relationships. You, you know, you've really just upended your life. Why did you do that? You, but recognizing that, oh, maybe it wasn't that maybe it was like, you're a butter, you're out of the cocoon. You're a butterfly. Now you're like, it just felt very, um, freeing. And after that, I had less angst. I had less, you know, inner, inner turmoil about having done it and would began to be more like, okay, this, this is who I am now. I am a person who used to practice Catholicism and, and here I am now. (laughs) It's interesting to hear that this invitation back into this conversation was such a kind of key part of your process to kind of like go back in and look around and be like, actually, this is not for me. And, you know, to be able to you know, I think that those kinds of moments are actually really important, um, to kind of be able to see something, um, as opposed to just going through it kind of on our own, you know? Well, and to not sever completely like this, you know, the overall arching paradigm of my life, of course, is the loss of my mother to cancer when I was seven years old. And that I experienced that as a sudden loss, even though she was ill, because I didn't, I was not fully grasp. I didn't, I don't think I was told, or if I did, I didn't understand it, that she was seriously ill. And so one day I find out that she has died. And so, and that in my family, we tended to 
there wasn't a lot of communication and explanation to the children. Things were just presented. Well, we're moving or you're going to go to this school now or, you know, and I think there was not a lot of, there weren't touchbacks like that where let's go back and kind of check in with that experience and bring it forward in a different way, bring it to a close. And that's why the hugging goodbye that we talked Mm. about last time with my former home is things like that are so important to me to kind of not be so severed. And I think the leaving of my longtime faith community, it jarred me. I didn't make the analogy between like, I didn't think of it as a loss. I thought of it as a life change, like a choice, like changing jobs or something. I didn't, I didn't really tune into it as a deep loss in the same way, which is kind of surprising because I tend to think of everything as loss, but I didn't have a, I just didn't have a paradigm for it. And it came about seemingly out of the, out of the blue over time. It's interesting. Um, you know, it makes me think of part of my experience was, you know, that, that finding the monastery and entering the monastery and, and going there was saved my life at the time that I did it. And it was such a source of like meaning and comfort and identity. And then at a certain point, it stops being that. And it's almost like this very painful individuation process. Mm, um, I and love that. I kind I of hear that. that in your story too, is that like this container for your life that you had found that worked so beautifully that you were able to integrate into your own home. And then there's this change that makes something visible, right? That's like, okay, this doesn't fit anymore. And um, I actually have to make this break, even though it's painful in order to kind of grow into the person I am now. Um, Yeah. And in a certain way, the liturgical and spiritual experiences I had there and the, the mentoring of the pastor that I mentioned, as well as the director of religious education, all the empowering things that I was exposed to in a way brought me to that place outside of the container in a, in a, because the parish was always different in tone and atmosphere than the larger church. And a lot of people chose to go to that parish for that reason. It it was a more inclusive, more um, egalitarian kind of environment. I so relate to that, that it's like, um, it was the very container and, and everything that I found there that, that sort of gave me what I needed to be able to leave and move on. And that, you know, it gave me all of this internal structure that I, you know, when I went in, I needed so much external structure to hold myself. Um, but over the years, I ended up even seemingly without even, you know, knowing it consciously, but developing all of this internal structure such that the external structure started to feel very oppressive. And, you know, um, so yeah, it's almost like this place that you go to get fed after a certain period of time, that um, food is no longer nourishing. That is so well put. You have mirrored my story back to me in a very helpful way. Well, I think that even though we're, we were in very different traditions and had very different, you know, you were a lay practitioner, you know, a householder, I was a monastic, but I think that there are like the basics, the basics of our stories are so similar in that way. And it's, I think that's why the conversations that we have about this are so um, generative and, you know, helpful is because we're each able to kind of process our experience by hearing about the other person's mm-hmm, experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The contrast, the there's mirroring and there's contrast Yes, that is in that contrast, there is clarity. I love that in that contrast, there is clarity indeed, indeed. Huh? So, okay. <laughs> Tell me I'm now I'm very intrigued about your, your exit from your monastic community. You know, in some ways I feel kind of like the beginning of the end actually. And, and I just want to say, you know, um, and maybe this goes without saying, and I'm going to say it anyway, is that, you know, the people that I trained with my ex-partner who I lived there with for 12 years, I have so much love and fond feeling. Um, and I hope that is, it is evident in my statements of my thousand description of my parents. I mean, I, I very fond of many, many people and hold great love in my heart for that place and those people. 
Yeah. And, and I'm glad that we, you know, aren't assuming that it goes without saying, but I I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I've been thoughtful about that too. Cause I've had moments where I did not feel that way at all, (laughs) but from this place, I really feel that. And I want to, you know, just kind of start from that place in early 2015, um, So the founding abbot of the monastery died in 2009. And at that time, all the students had to choose between the two teachers who were left, one of whom was going to be running the city center in Brooklyn, and the other was going to be the abbot up here, upstate. And so my partner and I both chose the abbot who was going to be up here. We had a kind of, we had a close relationship kind of with both teachers, but sort of temperamentally, we were kind of and we were living up here. So we, we chose this other teacher and this was in 2009. And in 2015, that teacher, our teacher, who we were both had become very close to, um, was asked to leave, um, amidst a sort of, I don't know, an all too common kind of, you know, situation in religious institutions. He had been having an affair, um, even though he, um, had lived at the monastery with his partner for over two decades. He had been having an affair with this woman in this other spiritual community and had been doing um, psychedelic drugs, you know, like while he was abbot of the monastery. And it was a mess. It was a mess. And um, talk about precipitous, you know, my partner and I lost our teacher, like all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And um there are many stories I could tell about that too. And that was when, as it turned out, I didn't know this at the time, my partner relapsed, um, which makes a lot of sense in retrospect. And, but none of us knew that. And it was so gradual and there was so much kind of turmoil at the time that like, we all missed it. And, um, you know, the, the new abbot, you know, came upstate and became our teacher, we were already in formation. And I should just like move over into my lane and just speak for myself. I was in formation. I was a postulant monastic who had just lost my teacher. And um, I had been very close to my previous teacher. And I felt like I had kind of lost my position as a special student, you know? And which I know is not supposed to be important, but you know, I'm a human being and it was at the time. And I think that everyone tried to really make it work. And I, you know, ended up ordaining. And I think that my teacher and I could not really find a way to work together. I remember one of the other teachers saying to me, you know, he doesn't know how to teach someone like you, you know, and I didn't know what that meant at the time, but like I, um, the phrase someone like you is not really a very heartening thing to hear about oneself. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, when I've, I've learned more about like the vagus nerve and, you know, that kind of thing. And like, looking back, it's like, wow, you know, this sort of dorsal ventral shutdown looks a lot like equanimity. <laughs> I think that's like a lot of what, you know, is happening at the monastery, I was the person who was sort of dysregulated in a very kind of like activated, angry, um, wild kind of way. And so that kind of looked like you can't settle down and that's the problem. And so, you know, from this place, I'm like, yeah, temperamentally, it just was not a good fit really. Um, and I, had so much responsibility at the monastery in terms of like my job there and even my liturgical positions in the meditation hall. I had all of this responsibility, but I was not ever being given any sort of spiritual authority. You know, there's a rite of passage that people go through that never happened for me. I was never sanctioned to give beginning instruction. I always felt like there was something wrong with my practice and that I just wasn't getting it. And this is like after, you know, over a decade and after a while that can really start to like work on a person. And, you know, I started, I mean, I'd always had kind of some level of self-doubt and it, that was really kind of expanding. And then I think the other piece that I cannot underestimate is that in late 2016, early 2017, I really fell into my art practice in a really 
potent way. And art practice was part of our formal training. It was one of the eight gates of training that we did was art practice, the founding cool. abbot. Yeah, it was very cool. Like we had to do it. It was a thing everyone had to do who lived there. The founding abbot was a photographer and the monastery was originally called the Zen Arts Center. And so art practice was like considered a really powerful way of seeing one's mind and studying one's mind. And I think that it, it really is. And I fell into this wormhole such that I ended up ordaining in 2017, but that entire year, I, I've talked about it since like I was having an affair with my art practice. You know, I had a partner and I was a monk, but I would be like sneaking off and stealing time to like make paintings and make cement and make mosaics. And like, I was obsessed. I would sit on my meditation cushion and just create like this ideal art studio in my mind. Like I can see that, like I was kind of building my bridge out. And so in 2019, my um, ex eventually disclosed that he had a substance abuse problem. And that's kind of the crack that, you know, eventually opened up into a, a chasm that I could not, you know, in a way, when I look at it now, it feels like he, without knowing it kind of like lifted up the fence and said, get out. You know, it was like my, my way to leap because I would have never left. I was too, for all of my sort of, um, reactionary, um, sort of way that I was, I was also very much a good girl. Like I had mm -hmm, made a commitment mm -hmm, and I was going to mm -hmm. see it through, even if it was like killing everybody, including myself. And so this sort of seemingly external circumstance happened. And, um, I, I do remember that happened in March of 2019. And I remember a journal entry from April of 2019 that said, if I'm going to be healthy, I can't stay here. Mm. I remember rereading that I think in 2020 or 2021 and thinking, wow, I, I knew already. And, and it's true. You know, I didn't feel, um, once I sort of broke with like, I wasn't doing the schedule anymore. I was going to Al-Anon meetings and I was really in a, in severely depressed. I felt like my, you know, um, monastic siblings didn't really know how to interact with me or, um, demonstrate care. And that may be unfair, but I just felt like they kind of stopped, you know, coming up to my cabin and, and trying. And, um, I think if you ask them, they would be like, well, we didn't want to like poke a wild animal, <laughs> which fair enough, fair enough. And so when my, my relationship finally ended in August of 2019, I, I sort of immediately was like, I'm leaving. Um, and I'm curious, is there any formal, um, process of undoing an ordination? Are you still ordained in some sense? having been ordained once in the Catholic priesthood, it's an, it's a, it has to be approved by the Pope has to say you're no longer a priest. Otherwise it's permanent. Far out. Um, that's a great question. I, when I left, I think I was still kind of like, no, I'm still going to be really involved. I'm still going to like, you know, do my job. And, you know, fortunately, you know, the abbot who was my teacher at the time was kind of like, why don't you just like stop shaving your head and like, really like go do the thing. And like, you know, we can like check in. And as it turned out, I, it was the last week of February. It might've been February 28th of 2020. So oh my goodness, we know that threshold, right? Two weeks before lockdown, I went to the monastery and had a very short private ceremony with my teacher called a release of vows ceremony. Okay. And, um, that was extremely helpful and just goes to show that creating a container to do something consciously, you know, to close that loop, it's like, okay, you, you have been released from these vows. And at the same time, I just want to say like, in my experience, taking a vow, you know, it doesn't express itself in my life through a monastic life, but, um, Ooh, I feel, I can actually feel that, um, feeling that grief feeling in my body right now. Like when I'm talking about it, it's like a, it's like having something stuck in my throat. Uh, well of said. Like, yeah. Of like, um, 
I remember saying to my therapist one time, she said, how does it feel? I'm like, it's hard to swallow. She said, yeah, it's hard to swallow. And I thought, God, even our idioms are so true, you know, that, um, my vows still feel like they are expressing themselves, Mm -hmm. um, in the life that I live now, I am one of my vows was to live the Buddha's way, which meant to live as a renunciant, you know, in a religious life. And I, I'm not doing that technically, but my other vows feel, um, active Mm -hmm. in a way. And, you know, I have really gone through so much. I, I feel like it's, um, moving through this stratigraphy of these different like layers of this experience that is changing all the time. There, there are times I go through where I feel enraged and times when I feel depressed and times when I feel grateful and it, you know, keeps moving and kind of slithering and changing. And, um, and I think that like the conversations that you and I have been having about ritual and liturgy are a way of, um, claiming something that really came from that life that I lived and that training that I did that was so every day, so deep in a way that like when I was doing, it was just kind of like, I remember someone saying like, yeah, being a monk is kind of like, it's a job, you know, it's like what you do all day long. And what we do all day long are like services and ceremonies and, you know, um, chanting sutras and making offerings and bowing and dedicating merit. I mean, like that was my full-time job. So, so when you and I started talking about these things together, it was sort of a way of being like, oh, that is all still inside of me and fully alive and operational without the sort of container and structure and language necessarily. Um, I also this week read some old journal entries and about from like 2015 and it struck me in general, how in search of an external structure that I was either when I was reflecting on my, my spiritual situation or my creative life, there was always this pining for some sort of solution or approach that would like fix me. And I, that strikes me now. I don't, I don't think about that that way. I'm much more intuitive about, well, this, this is what's called for today. Or, I mean, I have, I enjoy a lot of flexibility in my schedule and autonomy in my schedule. And I'm, I'm just not thinking about, well, what's the, you know, what's the structure I need? What's the affiliation I need to make? Or what, what's the, the thing that I'm going to be part of instead of this other thing that I was part of. It's that just doesn't even rise to the level of awareness anymore, which is just so interesting. It's so interesting. I remember yet I I feel, I feel also more connected to the old peg that was the active Catholic. I feel more integrated with, with what my essence or like, the whole thing around like the sacraments that you described about your vows. I think about the sacraments or the Eucharistic liturgy. I, that's all very, it's so trans, it's so meshed with me. I don't have to consciously think, oh, this is like mass or, oh, this is how I felt. It's just, it's just there. And, and it's, it's integrated. More, it's more integrated with the things I'm doing. It's more, it doesn't need to be imposed. I think, I think when I think about my experiences in my lifetime in institutional religion, it was fitting myself into something else. And that felt good. It felt good to have that, that, that system that I was part of for how to, how to pray and how to engage with communal worship and what, what symbols were meaningful in at times of year and seasons and feasts. But that's, that also is an overlay to the larger story that we're all a part of that I think I feel is the story now. I, I you know, this, the literal seasons are the seasons. I don't need Advent and Lent. And I mean, we have Lent in our life. I mean, the themes are there. It's, it's still part of me, but it's not so um, boxed, packaged. Maybe that's the right word, structured. It's, it's themes that I can call upon but it's not a, a rigid a schedule or a, a something I have to adhere to. 
I feel like, so this is another place where I feel like there's this total overlap between our experiences. You know, I remember in my twenties saying to my therapist, like, I, you know, I just, I wish someone would just tell me what to do, you know? And then I got to the monastery and it was like, guess what? Here's what to do. do. (laughs) Be here at this time, do this, you know? And it's almost like the, the, that having all of that, um, sort of so-called freedom in my twenties, you know, where I could kind of felt like I could kind of do whatever I want. I had to like put myself through a a very tight, like birth canal, like a very tight structure. Like you're saying, you know, do this, put your body here, do it. No, not like that, like this, you know, but I needed that. I needed that holding and containment. And just, you know, I always think about temperamentally, I didn't, gravitate to Tibetan Buddhism, which is very like Baroque and colorful and kind of, you know, I needed like black and white straight lines. There's a form. It's like this, you don't move, you know, and, and I really, um, you know, and, and the gift of that was like, I think about this all the time that, you know, inside the overculture to have, to go to a place where what's being centered is what you're doing with your mind and, you know, things like we talked about last week, like reverence, like offering, you know, like you know, just things that I feel like I had no context for where the culture is like, you go to school and then you get a job and then you buy a house and then you do this and do that. You know, this, I felt like I had a, got exposed to what I was really hungering for, which was mm-hmm. a spiritual life, you know, and that, you know, when you come through the birth canal, all that structure feels, you know, confining. Um, but what you're saying about, it feels integrated. It's like, what is it about like how in before all that freedom was like harrowing and, you know, caused so much suffering. And then on the other side, that freedom feels so creative and, generative, you know, and I feel like this is the place that you and I have kind of landed in as we've, you know, come outside of these structures is that we're able to experience that, um, freedom as something that we can, that's workable, that's wieldy. That's, you know, I think that is the framing question of our podcast. I hope we can like, we need to write that down. I also want to reflect that even creating this podcast, we are walking a line between structure and freedom and being free to not script ourselves too much, but having a guideline, kind of a, you know, a few paths, a few points we want to start off with jumping off points, but trust that we're going to kind of weave our way around it. And I think that is reflective of now that as I'm listening to you on that, I'm thinking that is reflective of how we are doing this activity as well. And that question of freedom and where it comes from and how we, how we live it happily is like the guiding question we're going to be exploring forever. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I used to think, you know, in my twenties, it was like freedom meant being able to do whatever you want. And so I had like structured my life in such a way I'd left my corporate job. I'd like started my own business. You know, it was like, I could do anything I want. And I was so unhappy, you know? And so if, if freedom isn't being able to do whatever you want, you know, and, you know, let's just name right? Let's just name that we are two people, two white women who have had the privilege to make choices to shape our lives in in these various ways. So just like naming that, um, that these are very, um, to be able to ask these questions and to explore um, these themes of structure and freedom, you know, I feel very grateful to be able to do that and acknowledge that many people um, are, you know, really, um, under the overculture and late stage capitalism, really just dealing with surviving and and the basics. And so, and and affirming that everyone ought to be able to engage with these things. Like that's kind of the vision of for everyone, not just for ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. But this tension or this dialectic between, um, structure and liberation, 
um, you know, it reminds me, and maybe, maybe I'll put an image of this in the show notes, but the three of wands card from the wild unknown is an image of these, you know, black and white horizontal lines in the background. And there's this inverted triangular, um, frame kind of tied together with these very rustic, rough looking branches. And inside that frame is this kind of like colorful rainbow watercolor wash mm. portal. And I remember, you know, that card, like the three of wands, whatever means something, but I remember looking at that card and thinking that is an image of what you and I are talking about right now, mm-hmm. that a, a good frame lets me explore and play inside of mystery and uncertainty. And, and I think that's where a lot of whatever you want to call it, generativity, creativity, magic happens is in riding that kind of tension or dialectic between structure and freedom. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's when we talk about ritual and liturgy, we're talking about how to create that really, um, beautiful, useful, frame for, um, a certain kind of thing to happen or emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> How's that? How'd we do? I think we did well and we're, we're at time. That's so great. That is right on. Oh, so good to talk about all of these things with you. I, it feels kind of cathartic actually. A thousand percent. I feel like every time we talk about these things, I kind of see a little bit more clearly and deeply into my own experience. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So bringing it in for a landing, um, what are we practicing now? Do you want to go first or do you sure. want me to go first? Great. Um, I have been delving into a number of different self-help books. And this week I've been reading uh, a book called No Bad Parts. Healing Trauma and Restoring Wholeness with the Internal Family Systems Model by Richard C. Schwartz, who is the creator of that approach. It's really, this is for the, you know, the consumer, the average reader, but his programs are mostly for therapists to kind of work with people. The idea that inside of us, you know, when we talk about like the voices inside or the different parts of ourselves, he, he urges that we think of this multiplicity as normal, not that there's something wrong with us, like we should have a unified mindset, but that these parts of us are, are real and natural and that his, this IFS approach invites us to listen to them and give them, listen to what they're really saying. And they have different roles for protecting us. And it, it jives interestingly with like the vagus nerves type stuff too, but he has a meditate, a daily meditation to check in with your internal parts that I've been experimenting with around the voices and the different aspects of myself to kind of listen to them and let them settle. So that's my new, one of my new things. I love that. You know, one of the most compelling programs that I ever remember being able to attend at the monastery, and I cannot remember the name of the instructor, but he, it was about internal family systems. Oh, he did a whole weekend retreat about this. And it was so riveting and helpful. He he presents, he says, you don't have to be spiritual in any way to do this, but he thinks of it as a spirit. Ultimately, if you practice it deeply, he sees it as a spiritual approach. It's not, you know, sectarian in any way. There's no dogma associated with it. Amazing. Amazing. So I, what am I practicing now? And, um, you know, interestingly, at some point in a future episode, I would love to, for us to talk about practice versus devotion, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll just like put a pin in that as they say, um, something that I'm practicing now is, um, emotional honesty with my most intimate friends. Um, I think that, you know, as I learn about astrology and I learn about my Capricorn moon, I learn that like, it is really normal and has been normal for me to kind of lie about how I'm doing actually, even when my very closest friends are like, how are you? Or to not actually, you know, just say like, um, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I need. And so starting to practice 
being honest about that, um, letting my very closest friends see what my needs are and offering them an opportunity to um, meet them in whatever way feels good for them um, feels like an excruciatingly vulnerable and super helpful practice. So that's what I'm up to right now. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, last episode, we kind of did not, um, talk very much about what you and I are each up to when we're not making a podcast together. So, um, do you want to say a little bit about your book and about the other work that you do? We're going to link all of these things in the episode notes. We, it'd be great to just hear it. Absolutely. Well, I practice energy healing here in Cincinnati. I have a private practice at in, in the city. And I also do virtual sessions, which there's more information about that on my website, pegconway.com, where you can also learn about my memoir of early mother loss, losing my mom as a child and how that has played out through my life and what has brought me healing. And information about that is also on my website. I do a monthly newsletter and I'm on Facebook as Peg Conway and I'm on Instagram as at Peg Morse Conway. And just to say, I got to have my first energy session with Peg this past week and, and yes, remotely, right. Cause I'm in the Catskills and she's in Ohio and just wow is all I want to say. We were talking about it earlier and I said, it is like being plugged into a charger. It's like being like plugged into your power source and resting and being recharged. It was amazing. So highly recommend. Um, so I, uh, lead tarot study groups and, um, do tarot readings and um, am developing a class that I hope to be offering in July about asking good questions. And um, you can find out about everything I do on my website at shayinthecatskills.com. And I have a monthly newsletter that really is kind of like a, it's like a, a digest of everything I'm thinking about and um, my inspirations. And um, I put a lot of myself into it and it's the best place to find out what I am up to. And you can find that on my website too. And likewise, I have been a participant in Shay's uh, tarot work, and I had not been exposed to tarot at all. Catholics, well, I shouldn't say Catholics. I, in my Catholic life, was not, that was not an avenue that I was exposed to at all. And I find, especially coming out of a scriptural background for so many years, working with images is very inviting and very part of that freedom of interpretation and, and listening. And, um, I just really, I really enjoy it. And it's, and it's not anything, there's no superstructure that I have to adhere to. If I feel like pulling cards, I pull cards. If I don't, I don't, it's, it's part of my, my process as needed. I love that. Thank and desired. You. I love that. Yeah. Here's to like no superstructure that we have to adhere to. <laughs> so, um, Thank you so much, everyone who has made it this far and listened to us. It's so good to share this time and space with you. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, Peg. Thanks, Shay. 